0: Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics!
1: Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger.
2: Here are
1: your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello everybody. Hello everyone. And welcome to your show, your internet radio show, where two northern chancers talk about comics. It's a Tim Pot show, isn't it? Thrown mm-hmm. together haphazardly and at random. That's the way we like it, though. With a little bit of work. There's a little bit of work involved. Just just enough. Not to... for me this week. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even done notes. <laughs> That's unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's not true. I have notes here. Actual written notes? Actual written notes. Long form notes. Long hand, not long form. It's more shorthand. Yeah, it's more shorthand. Hello, everybody. How you been? Pull up a seat. Sit a spell. Take the weight off. Put yourself a drink. Some wild turkey over there. Help yourself. Smoke them if you've got them. That's what you always say, isn't it? That's it. Yeah. Uh, have we done anything of import this week? Not yet. No, not yet. No. Oh, no, no. But we'll mention that next week. Okay. Just in case it all goes down the pan and doesn't end up being any good. <laughs> that would be awful, wouldn't it? Shall we go straight to emails then? Okay then. Oh, oh good chum or oh, mine. The Sound of Hushness is the title of tonight's email from Chris Franklin. Hello Leyland's. Hello Christopher. Ah, Hush was a train wreck of a story, as I remembered. Who put this on a best of Batman list? It's Loeb's weakest work that I know of. It's nothing but empty calories. Don Newton, yes, I love Don Newton's Batman. It defined my childhood ideal of the Dark Knight. He's vastly underrated, just a master of the four. I'm with Michael. I liked that running Batman and Nightwing cover. It harkens back to several Golden Age covers and of course the animated opening to the 60s TV series. DC Direct did make a hush skydiving Batman figure based on Lee's artwork. It was quite nice, but like many of DC's direct figures, it was very fragile. Mine has a broken leg and is in draw (laughs) somewhere. (laughs) <laughs> is that when it actually did the skydiving and yeah. <laughs> it didn't do it very well disclaimer does not actually perish <laughs> son of the demon was immediately decreed non-canon by Denny O'Neill but by this time Bob Shrek is in charge so who knows if it's in or out of continuity and yeah, now it doesn't matter Morrison's homicidal Talia is just wrong he was the first writer to take her into a murderous territory he didn't get her and now she's whatever
2: what is she now? Arrested. Is she? Dead. Oh. One of the two. <laughs> the two aren't similar. In the DC-verse, they uh, are. Oh,
1: right, okay. But in both cases, they can both come back. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Harold, continues Chris. No one seemed to know what to do with him outside of Alan Grant. I'm trying to remember if he even returned after nightfall. If he did, he was just standing around in the background. What happened to Ace, the post-crisis version? He was Harold's companion. I'm surprised Loeb didn't have Tommy Elliot him plastic fur surgery to remove the bat emblem spot on him. I'm surprised Tommy Elliot didn't gut him. It's <laughs> the kind of thing Loeb would have possibly had him oh, do to the dog. <laughs> The resolution of this story is the definition of a hot mess. It does indeed break the rules of any mystery ever written, especially in bringing in a character like Harold, Jason and Clayface at the last minute and making them central to the resolution. Edgar Allan Poe would be spinning like a rotisserie chicken if forced to read this. It is indeed pretty to look at, but ultimately just not worth it. It's a shame, too, because we all know Loeb is much better than this. It was fun to hear you guys pick at it. I think you were actually pretty kind to it. I wonder if the same can be said for forever evil. Uh, I don't know. Can the same be said about Forever Evil? Were we kind to Forever Evil,
2: do you think? I think we were pretty kind to it. Do you? We were kinder to Forever Evil than we were to Hush. Do you think? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Our next email probably agrees with you.
1: It's from Donovan Grant, and it is Hush and the utter agony of conflicting opinions. I don't (laughs) agonise over (laughs) conflicting opinions, but that's just me. Hello there, chums. Don here, long-time admirer, first-time emailer. Hello. I like first-timers. We ring that bell, don't we? (laughs) If we had a bell. Imagine (laughs) there's a bell. Imagine it ringing. Imagine it ringing. Imagine we've done a show. (laughs) Pretend we said something cool. (laughs) We can set the night off. (laughs) I've actually been on a Hey Kids kick lately, furiously listening to the last few months' worth of shows to get me through my night job. See, he's got a job. Alright. as well as the other various trials and tribulations of life I admit to being initially a bit skittish over the prospect of a man podcasting with his teenage son I kept thinking what if Michael stays out late one night and Andy grounds him that has almost happened on more than one occasion that a show has not been recorded because are you getting to bollock it for something along the line would they delay an episode due to Michael being on punishment I think we have done one once haven't we where well, you were in a really bad mood because we bollocked you and I thought this is going to be a dreadful show and for the two hours of the show you were sweetness and, and apple pie oh I'm great at acting and then the minute we turned the recorder off you stomped back off upstairs <laughs> <laughs> so Don we have got incredibly good at faking that we get along <laughs> we're like um, Bruce Willis the Civil Shepard we hate each other really don't okay. we <laughs> we eat onions when we do kissing scenes <laughs> ew <laughs> Those ridiculous trepidations, continues Don, were eventually shoved aside as Hey Kids is a great podcast, made immeasurably so through the wonderful rapport the two of you wacky characters have with each other. I was going to write in after listening to your Death of Gwen Stacy episode commenting specifically on how interesting slash funny I found Andy's rant on Sins Past to be. It's been a long time since I've heard such vitriol, such venom over a storyline that my iPhone earplugs actually began to spray out blood. Ooh, I hope you got them cleaned. That would, that wouldn't be hygienic, would it? Okay, not really, but they almost did. However, I'm writing in the night after listening to the second part of your Hush coverage, if only to get my thoughts in this now before I forget later. Hush is a pivotal story for me as both a Batman fan and a comics reader. Whilst Bruce Wayne Murder was technically the first major Batman crossover I read, Hush was the story I was into from the beginning. I remember the hype going into it and the DC message boards all buzzing about it after the preview images started showing up online. Or maybe in Wizard. As this was a memorable era to be a young Batman fan so I feel compelled at least to give my thoughts in contrast to your episode covering it Right up front, I'll say that I was 13 years old when Hush was coming out, so my need for quality storytelling that stood the test of critical thinking was nowhere near what it is today. It's why Dan Slott's Spider-Man Burley passes Muster. At the risk of sounding completely butthurt over someone else on the planet during to express a different opinion, I did come away from that episode with the image of tattered comic pages ripped apart and falling from Andy's gnashing teeth. I would never do that to a comic. Even a bad comic I wouldn't eat.
2: You don't get many calories from them, do you? you? don't, know. It's like
1: Q in Star Trek. Ah, oh, wolf. eat any good books lately? <laughs> it sounded like Hushy's false reputation as the best Batman story ever personally offended him. And he went to the ending with Guns Ablazing. Uh, it didn't personally offend me. I do think it shouldn't be, though. Yeah. Is the point I was trying to get across. In Furnace the ending is crap. I think everyone knew it at the time. The mystery by the end turned out to be ridiculous, and Tommy Elliot's whole character was a result of bad writing. The final chapter in the art makes this all plain as day. Most reasonable people will throw their hands in the air and admit that. However... What I felt most people took away from the story was the experience, the ride. This was a 12-month-long love letter to Batman and his history up to that point. It featured most of his classic rogues in the Loeb-style drawn by Jim Lee. It explored his relationship to most of his supporting cast and portrayed them accurately and affectionately, from Superman and Nightwing to Tim and Alfred. And in my opinion, the best thing about it was the focus on the Bruce-Selina relationship. Fun fact, the intermission story, The Cave, was inspired by an old story by Joe Staten when the Earth 2 Golden Age Batman and Catwoman fall in love and got married. The scene where Catwoman sees the unseen scars on Batman's back is a direct homage rip-off. I didn't know that. No? Because Alex Ross has done that as well, hasn't he? In one of yeah. his paintings, had Batman. And didn't they, they did it in Nolan's Bat movies as well, didn't they? Probably. Not, not Acknowledging that he would have scars and stuff. Don continues, this was Loeb's tour through the Master Manhunter's world, I like Master Manhunter, and the mystery itself was just subterfuge put there in order to justify the larger explanation. Your mileage may vary as to whether you enjoyed the ride or not, but I feel as though this ranks on the best of list most often, is because most people did. I know I did. At the time, the mystery was seen to be engaging, but by the end, I think a lot of people went, okay, the ending was crap, but well, that was a really fun year. That's certainly what I take away from it, and ultimately what its legacy is and should be. Of course, over-eager Batman fans will masquerade it as a daring mystery that shakes the foundations of Batman forever, but that's false. However, fans of Batman, specifically the post-crisis Batman, will love references to Chandra Kinsolving, Harold, death of Sarah S and death of Jason Todd, killing Joe, Luther as president and Talia working for him and various other little details. This was a story that for many illustrated Batman's world in a succinct way that either informed people unfamiliar with the basics or re-established it for fans with impressive Jim Lee visuals. Speaking of that guy, and again, this may come off as sensationalistic reactions to a nutty podcaster, but I came away from the episode with the idea that Andy has a personal dislike of Mr Lee. I'm not sure if it's the stench of the image era that still may cling to his back, or if Lee represents to him everything that's wrong with comic book artists. Uh, No, and I'm quite upset if it came across as having a personal grudge against him. I have nothing against Jim Lee. I've never met the man. He may be lovely. He comes across in interviews as being quite... Yeah. Amiable, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. I, I don't agree with the fact that he doesn't seem to feel the need to apologise when his comics are late.
2: Even, a, yeah, sorry about that. It would yeah. have been nice. It's his status that puts him above yeah, apologies. Puts,
1: um, there is no stench of image. I'd never read image. Mm. Uh, when the image books were coming out, I was I was in my pretentious Vertigo affairs, uh. where I only wore black. As evinced by the pictures that Claire, my sister, was sending on Facebook the other day to me, she was messy. I always wore Doc Martins and black jeans. I had great hair as well. Did you? Yeah, yeah, did fan- you have her? I, I had fantastic hair. <laughs> Not only did I have her, I had fantastic hair. <laughs> so I don't have a personal grudge against him, and it's nothing against the image stuff. I didn't read any of that stuff. If I knew Jim Lee at all, it was from Punisher War Journal. Yeah. Because I didn't even read X-Men. So I don't want it to come across that it was a personal attack because I don't really have an opinion of him as a person. I've never met him. He does seem like a decent guy. Maybe it's the cult of personality that follows Lee, Donovan continues. There are better artists out there and Lee does have a fairly dated style. I still think the work itself is great and the waltz colour art in Hush really shows the peaks of his talent. The shot of Batgirl and the fully illustrated image of Oracle is one of the best moments in the story. I can't imagine Andy would want Lee dead, so I'd love to hear what he thinks of the man. Well, I hope we've clarified that for you. I don't know him. Mm. I'm sure he's lovely. Also, hopefully I can clear up some questions that rose up during the discussion. This was Chandra's first mention since Night's End. She got better, was lazy writing, but the mere fact she was mentioned was fun. Jim Gordon retired after being shot during the Officer Down storyline, which, would you believe, he got shot in the back. Harvey Bullock also quit after being suspected of murder of said tutor, both inexplicably returned at the start of one year later. Harold walked off with Ace the Bat-Hound during cataclysm. We never see Ace again, so what did happen to Ace? Maybe he died. There's a six-issue miniseries in there. <laughs> Maybe that's that could have given him motivation for doing what he did. The dog died, right. and then he had no one. Yeah. That would have been quite a sad thing for him to have to get over, wouldn't it? This being a few years before the Under the Red Horde story, continues Dawn, I can recall with 100% positivity that the Jason Todd cliffhanger made shockwaves throughout Bat fandom. It may be hard to recount now since Jason is back, but at the time it was definitely a hook that stopped our breaths. Yes, it turned out to be a cheat, but like you guys, I thought Lube's writing was well done in how Batman figured out it was Clayface. To clear up how Riddler and Elliot knew Batman's identity, Riddler says he all but figured it out once he got out of the Lazarus pit that cured his cancer. He had to tell Elliot to fully enact his plan, but he told no one else. This wouldn't be followed up on much as the riddle was shot and gained amnesia soon afterwards. That's when Paul Dini made him a private detective. See, I'm still... So going in the Lazarus pit makes you figure out Batman's identity? Is that how Ras Al Ghul figured it out? I, I guess. Just the Lazarus pit suddenly gives you this knowledge... And it doesn't give you that knowledge of any other superheroes. It doesn't say, ah, oh, and Superman is Clark Kent.
2: Specifically Batman.
1: And Green Lantern is Tal Jordan or Kyle Rayner or whoever is this week. No, it just says, oh, Bruce Wayne is Batman. So that, that's still woolly. I'm sorry. I think that's still, still very woolly. Again, I hope this doesn't come off as too butt sad over the episode. I really did not enjoy it, but I will defend Hush on the merits that it's a fun story. Well, the Harley Quinn bits were fun. Sure, the mystery is brain-dead, and yes, I agree, Batman's rage is contrived in the Joker chapter, because we've never seen this tosser Timmy Elliott before. Even still, I'd argue that the characterisations are mostly spot-on. This was when the company image of Batman in the DC comics became Jim Lee illustrations, and even the previous DC logo for the movies, you can see flashing images of this story. Does it hold up writing-wise? Not particularly. Is it fun and memorable? If you like Jim Lee and Batman of a certain era, then yay all that being said it a great show and I look forward to more I probably should have spent time praising your daredevil episodes than whining about this <laughs> yeah but it's critical emails are always more fun yeah aren't they really all right I think they are. all the best Donovan Morgan Grant well thank you for emailing in that was very much appreciated good email huh? I enjoyed that our next email is from Brad Glynn g'day you rotten poms lols which is the subject heading? had in. I presume it's in Australia. Yeah. Wouldn't say Paul Morguday if he wasn't Australian, would he? Andrew and Michael. G'day. Yes, there you go again. How the hell are you at the top of the world and in the mother country? Well, not my mother country. Mine is in the Emerald Isle. But if it was up to our PM, it would be, but that's another story altogether. I am here to talk about your lovely podcast. I don't normally write emails, as I don't normally know what to say, but bear with me. I first came across your Pommy podcast when you were on your lonesome before you joined the Two True Freaks feed. The Pommy humour got me straight away. I suppose those Australians get the English sense of humour more than the Americans would. <laughs> but I'm here to talk about your 70s shows that recently ended, and I enjoyed them very much much, especially when Andrew did the voice of the Green Goblin. (laughs) The Pumpkin Bombster. I can't do it tonight, I've got a sore throat. I was doing my weekly food shopping and I was laughing so much, people were giving me strange looks. I heartily approve of that. (laughs) As Paul Spataro said to me recently, if I can embarrass a friend, I consider it a good day. (laughs) Thank you for getting me through the task of shopping. The Ghost Rider one was just a joy to listen to. I have never laughed so hard, but I was doing a workout in the gym at the time and all the serious people who were there pumping iron gave me weird looks. (laughs) You do get very serious people in the gym. Yeah. Oh, they take it very seriously. You think they're all got to be hard bodies and they're all schlubs like me, but they're still taking it very seriously. (laughs) Anyway, lovely Leylands, keep up the good work, and yes, it's a short email. There was a show in the 70s here in Australia called The Leyland Brothers, and every time I think of that theme song, when I hear your podcast, Brad Glynn. Well, thank you, Brad. It's nice to be listened to in Australia. I hope you've never been offended by my attempts at Australian accents, <laughs> particularly when I uh, I tried to do Captain Boomerang. Cobber. <laughs> do I, did, nobody says I Cobber. Think that, I think it's just a bad accent anyway. Do you think that? Do yeah. you think that's just a bad accent? Okay, oh, fair enough. Let's cover another one. It's forever disappointing. It's from Nathan Wozniak. Hello,
2: I Nathan. That's the most insulting thing anyone's ever said about our show. Well, forever disappointing. <laughs> that's kind of the poster. Kids
1: <laughs> <laughs> comic's sufficiently silly, forever disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm having that. I'm owning that. <laughs> You can't be really upset then if it's no good, can you? If we put it on the poster that it's forever disappointing, you cannot complain when we let you down. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Leyland A and Leyland B. The two of you can fight amongst so yourselves Who is who? I am a big fan of your show. You're not a fan, Nathan, you're a friend. I don't like fans, I don't have fans. Makes me uncomfortable. Often finding your commentary, continues Nathan, on the silliness, awesomeness of comics, very entertaining. I also like hearing the different views, since the two of you are of different ages. I'm much closer to Michael than Andrew, but I've always had an affinity for older media. I prefer 70s and 80s music, well, sort of you. I love classic Star Trek and some old comics definitely connect with me better than current works. I just finished listening to your Forever Evil podcast, a very entertaining and well-structured show. There was a lot of backstory and mainstream Story to get through, and it was all explained quite well. Well, kudos to my co-host because I did jack all for Forever Evil. Yep. That was all down to Michael. I was away for the week. <laughs> Take a bow.
2: I'm, I'm taking a bow. Imagine me taking a bow. Yeah, he
1: did a bow. Pretend you saw it.
2: It was great. It was
1: great. Nathan continues, I've been collecting Justice League since the New 52 started and I doubt I'll stop any time soon even though I'm often disappointed in the New 52. I'm too invested in the characters to stop and Justice League since Jim Lee left anyway has mostly been pretty damn good. I definitely agree with Andrew though when he says a miniseries like Forever Evil should stand on its own merits without other titles and it most definitely doesn't. It just seems like DC isn't trying to appeal to new readers and keeps aiming at the audience they've currently got. Which can't... negates the point of the New 52, doesn't it? Yeah. Although, to be fair, let's give them some credit. Last time, we talked about the Scott Schneider, Greg Capullo, Batman, and you said if you were leaving, which you're now not, as you decide what you want to do, you were going to take the Batman comics, you would buy me all the trades, so I was looking at all the trades, right? and I was looking on Amazon, and there are a number of feedbacks, feedbacks, that's not a word, you know what I mean, reviews on Amazon from people who've never read Batman before and jumped on with the Scott Snyder stuff yeah and love it right so that's attracted new readers but it doesn't matter if you've never read Batman before does it Scott Snyder stuff works yeah it's not convoluted even with whatever new continuity they want to throw at you Nathan continues, I too feel that the Justice League issues of Forever Evil are much better than the main event. The story starts off well and brings some much needed characterization to Lex Luthor, who so far hasn't had much impact. The idea of the villains winning and Earth's only hope being other villains is cool and compelling. It takes several issues for all of Lex's team to come together though, and they only attack the Syndicate in the last two issues. In the Justice League issues, we get the further development of Cyborg, who may be the biggest success of the New 52, and re-induces element of the DCU like the Metal Men and the Doom Patrol, to a lesser extent. I like the Metal Men. They're a goofy and uniquely DC concept and something that could only come from superhero comics. I was very pleased that Geoff Johns didn't make them dark or gritty or super macho or badass. They have exactly the same personalities they've always had. It is one of Johns' great skills, taking the elements that originally made existing characters interesting and highlighting them in both an organic and entertaining manner. I'm going to sum up by saying that Forever Evil was okay, but like a lot of DC's events at the moment, only exist to set up the next story, which leaves for a very unsatisfying read. I wish it had been a Justice League story as it really wasn't strong enough to justify a company-wide crossover. And yes, I feel cheated. Cheated, I say, that we never got a Justice League versus crime syndicate moment. I like villains taking centre stage, but I read superhero comics to see superheroes do superhero stuff, and I spent the entire story waiting for that, and it never came. Sorry I went on so long, Some of my, none of my nerdy friends, sorry, are superhero nerds, clearly there's something wrong with them, and thus I don't get to talk about the incredibly important stuff with anybody keep up the good work Nathan Wozniak oh, alright so it's pronounced with a V so that would be Vozniak, wouldn't it Wozniak yeah sorry Nathan I'm butchering your name Nathan Wozniak that was Nathan thank you very much Nathan we like that it was good even if I did messy name up for which I do apologise we're going to take a quick break it'll be a promo for something I don't know what Michael's doing it I'm having a week off <laughs>
0: My name is Bob Fisher and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's
1: long history and talk about it. From 1938 to the present day, from the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my
0: life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each
1: and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio, supermanforever.com.
2: Continuing from last week, we're moving straight into Clarion, The Witch Boy, issue 3, The Deviant Ones, which has a cover of Clarion and Teakum in a city surrounded by screens showing Melmoth's face.
1: I like the the bird's eye, not bird's eye, fish eye lens look to the cover. It's very good. The cover's nice. Colouring's nice. Not too sold on Clarion. Still not. No, and having read all of his his miniseries, I appreciate the religious undertones that he's put into the story. I thought they were quite interesting, but he just didn't... I did not like it. Yeah. But of the lot of them, this was the lesser. Right. In
2: 1590, the Puritan colonists that lived in Roanoke, West Virginia, vanished mysteriously, leaving only the words Croatoan carved into a tree. The tribes were visited by the Shida themselves, and hid deep in the caves underground, At a meeting in the present day, Melmoth plans to drill into the caves to find that tribe. Melmoth owns a hostel for homeless children. Children who take Clarion to the Museum of Superheroes, where they steal a vehicle with a large drill on the front and take it back to Melmoth. That night, the leader of the gang, Billy Breezer, lies awake at night, waiting for the clock to hit midnight, waiting for his 16th birthday. When Melmoth's Deviant Ones turn 16, they make it to Team Red, the team for grown-ups. At the strike of midnight, Billy hears Golden Boy, who Billy aspires to, outside his room. With no life left in him, Golden Boy tells Billy that Team Red isn't all it's made out to be, digging gold beneath pink skies. Melmoth watches as Golden Boy tricks Billy before dragging him into a portal to the mine. Through t Clarion watches, and, wanting nothing to do with Melmoth and the Deviant Ones, who are shocked to learn the truth of Team Red, Clarion leaves and decides to return to Kroatoam to save his people from Melmoth, who is travelling there in the drill.
1: Um, I don't know. Like I said, I mean, there's some really, really funny bits in this. Like, Melmoth introducing Clarion to Cake, and chocolate, and actually saying, Unwrap a Snickers bar. Yeah. There's just some of the dialogue was really clever, and I did like that Melmoth in this looks like Grant Morrison. Does he? Do you not know think? No, who does he look like? He looks like what, a clown doll face. Who am I thinking of? I don't know. No, not from Buffy, not the doll from Buffy. Right. Oh, Saw! Uh, yeah. It's okay. the doll from Saw, isn't it? From the Saw movies. Yeah. Either way, Melmoth's creeper. Yes, Melmoth's exceptionally creeper. I like all these kids in the pumpkin taxi. Yeah. And all of that stuff was funny. And Clarion throwing up after he gets out of the car. It was all interesting. But all this kid stuff was better handled when they get to the Guardian story. When they do the News by Legion. They're not called the News by Legion, are they? What are they called?
2: The News by Army. The
1: News by Army. Oh, I I enjoyed all of that a little bit more. But the dialogue's funny. I thought the dialogue
2: was clever. This clarion got pretty dark when they introduced the children.
1: Yes, clarion got very dark, because doesn't this chapter end with them burning him as a witch?
2: No, that's how the next one starts. That's how the next one starts. This one gets dark as they start introducing the child slave labour camp that shows up in Frankenstein.
1: Yes, because Mel Melmoth starts showing up in other places, doesn't he? Yeah, there's a wonderful bit in one of them later on where he's walking past him. There's a bit where um, it's Mr Miracle. Mr Miracle's walking past, Guardian and his girlfriend having that fight where they throw the engagement ring down the drain. So there's lots of little touches like that that are really clever. There's a part of me that wishes I'd had time to read it and then read each separate mini-series again yeah. individually. Yeah. So read it all as it's presented in the trade paperbacks, and then go back and read the Mr. Miracle series and then the Clarion series and whatever. Yeah. Because you can read them in whatever order you want. It's yeah. really very well structured and I can see why writing it gave him a headache. Yeah. Because he mentions that in, in the back of Volume 2. There's script extracts.
2: Yeah, and he's actually, And, he's, he's, and he's talking
1: about our writing the you week. finished
2: volume tour I read it? I've not, but i read the script bits at the end. All oh, right, but That would have ruined the
1: last oh, issue. it's not, because I've only skimmed his notes. Oh, okay. I've not read the actual tip bits. But uh, the Clarion stuff didn't jibe so much. I mean, there is a very much a Fagan-esque quality to the story, which I think is what I've got in my notes. He's very much like Fagan in... Um, God, one of them Dickens books. I forget which. Yeah. I can remember the intricacies of Spider-Man. It's but, Oliver Twist, isn't is it? It's Oliver Twist, but classic literature. full of me head. <laughs> so that's all going on for him, and dealing with the children is does take quite a dark twist. Not yeah. quite as dark as Mr. Miracle does, later yeah. on. But, yeah, because Clarion just doesn't want any part of this, does he? Clarion oh. just wants to go off and have adventures, and be a young stud muffin. But, yeah... Yeah, see, I remember the start of the next issue being the cliffhanger to this one, but it isn't, is it? No. All right. Fair enough, yeah, the Clarion one, it's not bad. Yeah. I like the undertone. I like that it gets a little bit darker with the introduction of child endangerment and um, using the kids to commit his crimes for him. Just the best bits are yet to come.
2: Yeah. I like how this is tied into, like, real-world stories, like Roanoke. Yeah. And the Croatoan thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the art... The art's grown on me. Although I do think that the coloring is doing an awful lot of this again. The coloring does look really so Fraser nice. Fraser Irvin
2: does all of his coloring himself. Does he? He does it digitally. Yeah. All right. That's
1: fair enough. Then he's coloring his own work. He's doing a bang up job of it. Mm-hmm.
2: What was next? Um, Shining Knight, Issue Four. All right, Simone was... Bianchi's back. Yes, the Last Stand of Don Vincenzo, which has a cover of Justin fighting Gloriana, the Sheeda Queen. Justin. Justin. Now, Justine. You'll ruin it. (laughs) (laughs) I've already read it, Dave. Yeah, I know. What did you make of the cover? Where
1: was the cover? Alright the cover's there. It's another fighty-fighty cover of Justin fighting the Borg Queen. Yeah. From Star Trek First Contact. Fair enough. There's nothing wrong with it. I still think the colouring's too dark on it, but it suits the tone of the story. Yeah. So, all right, fair
2: enough. Justin finds himself in the Shida arena fighting the long-possessed Galahad whilst Gloriana and Spider watch. Whilst fighting, Gloriana smells the blood of a womb and, as Galahad unveils the cloth tied tightly around Justin's chest, realises that Justin is actually a girl in disguise. Gloriana receives word that her husband, Melmoth, is still alive somewhere and decides to leave. Meanwhile, Don Vincenzo rises from the cauldron as the Nebula and the Shida attack the mansion. Riding out on Vanguard, Vincenzo and his men attack the Shida and fight to the death. As Justin takes Galahad's sword and slices his head off, she remembers when he knighted her as the Shining Knight, learned of his death, and rode Vanguard out to the castle revolving.
1: Uh, This one's been alright. I like that this one seems more enmeshed in the whole Shida storyline, and Don Vincenzo's funny, because he's just like Tony Soprano if he worships a demon. (laughs) <laughs> which is, is good and uh, didn't we call it last week or I did that that was a girl yeah yeah are you happy with that and I just sit here going oh yeah and you I had to you sit here going <laughs> oh do you think that looks like a girl <laughs> oh, yeah. so I like that she's got her chest bound up mm. which makes perfect sense in the grand scheme of things it's not Quite as dull as that one we covered last time. That was a shot of people talking, and yeah. then a close-up of a sword, and then a shot of people <laughs> talking, and then a close-up of a sword. this one had things. This happening one actually it. had things happening in it, and I like Don Vincenzo riding the winged horse. Yeah, <laughs> with his machine guns blazing, or his Tommy guns rather than his machine gun. It was it was good. I liked it. I liked all the. that it's tying in. I, she cuts the top of his head off as well, mm-hmm. which was nicely graphic. See, I don't mind the violence too much in a series like this, because this is quite clearly aimed at a slightly older audience. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Grant Morrison's writing it should be a sign that it's aimed at a slightly older readership. Was this. was none of these a Vertigo Boot, though?
2: No, it's DC. It was just a standard DC title. Well, DC's its own separate thing now so they don't use each other's characters do they? No see I suppose back in
1: the in the, the 90s or something this would have been a Vertigo crossover yeah. series wouldn't it? Which is you know there's nothing wrong with it I just think it would have it would have stood out perhaps a bit more if it was a Vertigo Yeah Is that the end of that story? Yeah,
2: yeah. That was the last chapter That's the that, only problem with these Yeah reading falls. it like this you do get
1: a bit confused about where you're going. So Zatanna was a three-issue miniseries, then? No, four. I thought there was another chapter of this in volume two. Yeah. Because where they split volume one up confused me. I think I said to you when I was reading it, Clarion part four would have been a better place.
2: Well, they split it evenly, so there's 15 per... 15 issues per book? Yeah. All right, I suppose that makes sense. Fair
1: enough. All right, we'll move on to Zatanna issue three, then. Mm.
2: I kind of like how this, the, the last issue, Shining Night ended where the first issue began.
1: Yeah, it comes full circle, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. Where it flashes back. But then again, if you're just reading this mini-series on its own...
1: It makes perfect which, sense to be cyclical.
2: I guess, but it kind of he- ends on that cliffhanger that you only get if you read the last issue of Seven Soldiers. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're reading this anyway, you're going to be reading all of it.
1: Yeah. I would imagine that you've made the commitment to read all 30 issues yeah. at this point. Zatanna, the cover to issue three is nice.
2: yeah, yeah. Um, Issue 3, Three Days of the Dead, has a cover of Zatanna meditating and doing magic-y things.
1: See, because last time she'd lost her ability to do magic, hadn't she? I'm bringing myself up to speed on where we were. Yeah. Because she's why she was in... She didn't lose it, but... She thought she'd lost it, which is why she was in magical therapy. Yeah. And that's where she met Misty, who we thought was named after Paldini's missus. Which would make sense to me. Yeah. Go on, tell us what happened since
2: this. It's a good cover. I right, mean, the problem with that cover is, where's, where's her, her ass gone? She well, literally has no behind. Is the
1: implication, though, that she's got, like, a bodice on that is the same colour as the background, and therefore it's blending in, or... I don't
2: know, because her back's missing underneath yeah. a little corset I, thing. I didn't
1: quite understand what he was going for, though. I like the art. I like Ryan Souk's art. Yeah. And I like how he draws Zatanna. But it does just look like her back and her backside have disappeared. Artistically, I didn't get what he was going for, though. No. It's just transparent. I would have preferred him to actually draw something. <laughs> but maybe that's just me.
2: What do I know? Well, remember the guy with the hat that Justin saved from the thugs? Remember the bus he got onto? Well, Death is the driver of said bus who drives souls to the graveyard. But the man in the hat isn't quite ready yet and needs to make one final stop. Zatanna takes Misty on her first exorcism, and she uses her magic die to stop the tempter. On the way back, the man in the hat stands in the middle of the road as Zatanna panics, and drives straight through him. The man is Ali Kazum, who has come to Zatanna for his cabinet, saying that burning it will give him the power he needs. While they burn it, he talks about the adventures that took them to Slaughter Swamp, where they met the Furry Queen and the Time Tailor. They travel to Vincenzo's mansion. They find dead bodies and Vanguard being tied by the Shida. Misty tells the Shidas to stop, and they do and kneel. As Ali holds Vincenzo and kisses his body goodbye, Vanguard tells Atana about Vincenzo and Justin. Ali and the ghost of Vincenzo step on Death's bus as it drives away. Zatanna and Misty decide to investigate and head into the mansion, where they find Nebula carrying the cauldron. Misty recognises Nebula as the huntsman, who Gloriana had killed Misty, as with the cauldron, there would be no need for a princess. However, the huntsman could not kill her, and instead, Misty span a dress made of web, and the more she span, the more she forgot. The Huntsman won't hesitate now, though, and commands Misty leave before he can kill her. Vanguard smashes through and Zatanna grabs Misty and climbs onto the horse, escaping in a panic.
1: Um, I said last time that the Zatanna series was perhaps my favourite, and uh, in Volume 1... Yeah, it is. As we get to Volume 2, that's a completely different kettle of fish. um, It's very much Doctor Strange... Isn't it? Yeah. I think we said that last time as well. But it's so playfully done. I'm not sure about Zatanna spilling out of her top. Yeah. I kind of think she'd wear something a bit more what's But the relationship between Zatanna and Misty is hysterical. And the dialogue in this is very funny. Mm. I don't normally associate Grant Morrison with funny dialogue. Yeah. I don't know why. But, so, you've got the slimming group to eat themselves with three tons of British chocolate. What next? How about persuading a cat to kill a mouse to show us what you can really do? That was funner. Mm. And I love Misty doing her first exorcism. And they do... High five. <laughs> yeah. You just breeze through basic magic instruction. The dialogue in it was all, all really, really clever. I still think Ryan Seeks art is brilliant. And really suits the story. I love them crashing into the guy and Zatanna's. Didn't that guy have legs before we hit him? Because he's now just stood in the middle of the car. Yeah. All of that's absolutely fantastic. It, this Zatanna miniseries has been really good. I mean, prior, I have only liked Zatanna when Paul Dini's written her. Mm. But this miniseries makes me want Grant Morrison to write a Zatanna miniseries. Yeah. Because if anyone could get that to sell at the minute, it'd, it'd, be, it'd probably be him,
2: wouldn't yeah. it? You do get the
1: impression you can well, stick him on any B-lister and it would make, make it sell.
2: Clarion's getting his own series now. They've just announced that. Have they? Who's writing that? Anne... And Anne Shenta?
1: Nick, yeah, her. Right. Oh, that won't be terribly good, then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not a big fan of Anne Shenta's writer. Fair enough. You know, it's never really grabbed me. The, the winged horse, Justin's winged horse, shows up in this.
2: Yeah, well, they're at Vincenzo's Along with Don Vincenzo, yeah. So it is all starting to slowly... With Guardian as well, Tar together because Ali Kazum and yeah, she mentions Ali Kazum, Vincenzo, and this. So it is all coming together very slowly. And as we find out, they're part of the old Newsboy Army.
1: I still don't know why they don't call him Newsboy Legion. This guy here is totally a Ditko Doctor Strange villain. Nebula. Nebula is because um, he even talk. You know, he reminds me of oh, yeah. Marvel villain. What's his name? He's always black with stars in him. I can't remember his name for the life of me. Eternity, yeah. I
2: think. Right, not not dagger or cloak. No, not cloak and dagger. Right.
1: He's he's a big mystical cosmic bad guy. Yeah, he sees all and knows all and all <laughs> of that stuff. So he he does remind me of Nebula, hmm. which uh, is
2: great. When um, when it just turns into um, Snow White,
1: uh, you've got some serious explaining to do, young ladies. They fall through the thing with the, the horse. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I really did like this Satana series. Yeah, I thought it was it was very clever.
2: I like how they dragged in at least two other series into it.
1: Yeah, as you get into chapter three, suddenly you've got references to the um, the Justin and the Horse and Don Vincenzo and Guardian, and it is all tying together quite cleverly. Yeah, that's why I would like to have read the individual mini series because reading it like this, it was a bit pulp fictiony. So suddenly now you go from the cliffhanger with Zatama and back to reading Guardian. Mm. And you're like, oh, right, okay. And you've got to kind of adjust your mindset slightly to kind of
2: remember where you were up to when you were reading Guardian. I think sometimes it works nicely because for some issues there's a period of time between them. Whereas it just carries straight on.
1: And you're, you're putting together yourself where it all takes place. It's
2: really yeah. good, Because even collected in the release order, they're still all Wibbly Wobbly. Yeah, they're still all over the place, so aren't they? So there's, there's an issue of Mr. Miracle, which is in the second volume that takes place during the Guardian. During the Guardian, which, the is, Guardian the story, which the is the beginning one. of this, yeah. yeah. So it is all over the place. And I- even the first one, though, Zatanna takes place before Seven Soldiers Zero. Yes, but it's in the book. It's in after that. Yeah. So, fair enough. Guardian Issue Four: Sex Secrets of the Newsboy Army has another newspaper cover with headlines. Guardian quits and dark secrets of the newsboy army. Apparently, they're not allowed to put sex on a cover. Probably not? Well, it's the issue's called Sex Secrets and the cover says Dark Secrets.
1: Right, maybe they're not. Because you remember, at SFX magazine you used yeah. to take great delight in putting things <laughs> over the F. Yeah. So it looked like the magazine was called Sex, but they could actually say, actually, it's not. <laughs> called SFX we've just covered the bottom up I like that cover I always like mock newspaper covers Mm. I think it's great but I think this entire issue is great
2: but we'll get to it after you've told us what happens in it Ed Stargard tells Jake about his newsboy army back in the day when he was known as baby brain about their adventures one day, Ali Kazum rushed into the printing press ranting about their friend, Mo Colley, killing police in the street. As Miss Hollywood approaches him, he comes to his senses, but is soon gunned down in front of her. They find that there is a creature on the back of his neck controlling him and, after reading reports of furries, decide to investigate Slaughter Swamp. They found a house and decided to look around, but inside they found a strange man who made special clothes, clothes they wear when they were older. In the years to come, the team broke off and each member became their own person, all of which have been hunted down by the Sheeder. As the power of the Guardian Heights shuts down, Ed says that the Sheeder hunt teams of seven, as it's said that only a team of seven will be able to kill them. But they aren't here for Jake, they're here for Ed. He says that Jake was set up by Larry to become part of something bigger, and that the Sheeder won't recognise the new seven soldiers, as the soldiers won't even recognise themselves. As the Shida close in on them, Jake grabs Ed and calls Carla and prepares to take the fight to the streets.
1: Uh, this Guardian miniseries was great, and it was easily the best one in the original batch. Yeah. Uh, I think that mainly because Zatanna number four ended up being in volume two. Mm. So I wasn't really able to judge that as a complete whole upon reading the first book. But this Guardian series, it was a Kirby series, but filtered through Morrison's 21st century sensibilities. Yeah. So this this is big words, and um, the yeah. other, all of the newsboy legion that you remember from Fourth World, or the Superman comics in the 90s, the baby with the glasses on yeah. is hysterical. And I love the way he talks, but he's still a baby, so he gets upset and cries and yeah, still has yeah, to have yeah. his nappy changed and all of that stuff which I thought was brilliant and then when we get to the now and he's explaining to Guardian that he's aged but he's not actually grown normally mm. so he's still a baby but he's aged Yeah. so it's like he's mentally grown older and he, he does very definitely have lines and stuff on his face as if he's aged normally yeah. but his body has never gone past being six months old mm. so he still needs people to change his nappies for him And feed him. And I love that he gets given a bottle with milk him, but Thingyo says it's vodka later on. And there's all those little touches.
2: This Guardian series was really good. I like the very Captain America line where he says, I'd rather you be a man I can look you in the eye than a computer.
1: Yeah. And I love that it flashes back in between them growing up.
2: Yeah. And
1: the art changes when you go to the flashbacks. There's a bit of Steve Dillon to it. Yeah. In a lot of cases.
2: The flashbacks are pretty cool because it gets all green like it's a film reel and bits. Yeah.
1: It, f- it bleeds out. So- I mean, I could have done without the guy getting his eyeball pulled out. But this kind of goes to this being a, a Vertigo boot rather than yeah. a
2: standard comic boot. And honestly, I don't think the guy getting his eye pulled out is as bad as the next page where the guy gets gunned down in front of the little girl.
1: No, the little girl's just stood there. Because who was he supposed to be? He was just a friend of those. Right, but who's he analog- analogous to in Newsboy Legion? Because he must be, because I, I, he's been taken over by the little Sheeda furry guy, hasn't he? Yeah. So now he's going around killing people, and the girl talks him out of it, and then he gets shot dead by the police. So it's, it's Morrison again playing... There's a lot of Morrisonisms in this. Yeah. The juxtaposition of Silver Age fun with more brutal, graphic 21st century violence. Yeah. And his dialogue is filtering it through a modern sensibility as opposed to the more over-the-top dialogue, or melodramatic is probably a better term, dialogue yeah. of the Jack Kirby comics. But it's still recognisably a Jack Kirby comic mm. if Kirby was still around to write and draw them. Yeah. Do you know what I think? Kind of. But the team all falling apart at the end because they were growing up was actually quite sad.
2: Yeah, and then and when Baby Brain starts crying,
1: yeah, that they're all breaking up, and Melmoth then shows up.
2: That's not Melmoth. Who is it? That's they say, in there's a Tanner issue. He's the the time Tailor, He's one of the seven unknowns. Yes, he's he like is. I mix him up because
1: he's another bald guy. <laughs> it's like Superman's villains. <laughs> they're all just bald guys. So when he's in the shade like that, I thought he was Melmoth, but you're right, he's not. And then. What you see the kids and then captions underneath of what they became of what they became as adults, and there's a part of you that's like, I don't want to know that the news by Legion became faded alcoholics.
2: Well, will you get that. Um One of them, I'm pretty sure the girl was gimmicks. Yeah, faded alcoholic. Yes, she is. Yeah,
1: because they mentioned that later on. Yeah, in the guard, that not Guardian. But another story in Volume Two. They mentioned that gimmicks was her.
2: Yeah, thieves got. What's-His-Face who was Vincenzo. Yeah. The the first guy with scars on his face. Yeah. Ali Kazum. And then Ed Stargard. Yeah. And then um, the dead kid that you mentioned in the last issue of Zatanna. And then the poor dog. Yeah. But the dog's dead. Yeah. Because he died at first. So probably. that's the, the big deal with Ali Kazum's chest and why it was covered in police tape.
1: Because
2: mm. there was the kid's remains in it. Right. And then the last page ties into the last page. Just goes straight into Seven Soldiers, if you want. Into Seven Soldiers, issue one. Yeah,
1: which happened at the beginning of. It
2: at the no, end that, end that end was end. zero. Yeah,
1: wasn't it? It's issue zero. one yeah. was at the back of volume two.
2: Zero is a big
1: now. Apparently so. <laughs> it's all very confusing to me. Yeah, uh, the back of the first, but it's supposed to be. But the fact is, when you're reading it, you're not confused by it. Yeah, it's one of those really bizarre Martin, Martin, Grant Morrison comics that actually you're reading it and you're not confused.
2: I also like how you're reading it and a later issue will give you more information about other issues you've just read, even yeah. if it's a different series. Yeah, well, all that stuff with the, the pictures of the kids and what they grew up to be. Yeah, that ties and to that comes all the
1: other ones, yeah. So, it's one of those Grant Morrison comics, not like Final Crisis, where you're scratching your head as what the hell's going on. Yeah. It seems very complex and complicated. But very structured. Because it is. Yeah. But it, it actually seems like he sat down and really thought about how it all plans together, how it all slots together. Yeah. And how all that information can be disseminated to the reader in such a way that it's all there. And as you're reading it, it all coalesces. So you put it together
2: yourself yeah. as well, yeah.
1: Whereas with Final Crisis, there was bits of that where you, and you as well were
2: going back reading pages again. Yeah. And going, right, so what was happening here? A lot of it is remembering that... It takes place very non-linearly. But
1: this, he's telling a very non-linear story here because that's what he's in love with. Yeah. He's in love with telling stories in such a way that they're out of sync and you've got to do some work and tie them all together. But he does it in such a way in this that it's never, your eye was never read this confused as to what was going on. Yeah. Which I can't say about everything who is I've ever
2: read. Which why I was quite surprised when I didn't think you'd be a big fan of Zatanna and Mr. Miracle. I love Zatanna. they were the most out there and they ended up being one yeah. of your favourites.
1: Well, I mean, we've not talked about Mr. Miracle yet because we've not got into Volume 2, which we're just about to leap into. But I love Mr. Miracle as well.
2: Yeah. That's dark as hell. Oh, yeah. But, but that's that's where this ties into Final yeah. Crisis. This is essentially part one of what becomes Final Crisis. Right. So remember how the, the Dar- I don't have to read Final Crisis again. Do no, you? no, no. Good. Remember how Darkseid <laughs> got shot in Final Crisis? Yes. According to Morrison, when he gets shot in Final Crisis, he falls back through time. Yeah. Destroying time, which we see in Final Crisis, mm-hmm. and landing in the body of Boss Darkseid in this. Yes. So, to us, this takes place before Final Crisis, but to Darkseid, Final it's Crisis... It's as Final our- Crisis. Yeah.
1: See, that's actually quite time travel cool. Yeah, I quite like that. So you may be reading all of his stuff as just this is the Morrison universe. Yeah, would, and just ignore everything else. Yeah, would actually make things work. I don't know how you'd make me like X Men <laughs> in that particular scenario. That's Marvel. That's a separate Morrison universe. Uh, okay, that just
2: involves the X Men. Yeah, and that Fantastic Four mini series he did, and, uh, and Marvel Boy. yes. Yeah. The, only, the only problem with the Morris universe is every time I want to reach Seven Soldiers, I have to go, right, let's dig out Animal Man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and start again. Uh, your hardcore has got a sketch in it by Yannick Paquette. Yeah. Which is actually quite nice. He was, he was a really nice guy when he did it. Is that a bullet here?
2: Yeah. I asked, could he, was he doing sketches? he said, not really, because he wanted to get the actual page commissions done. And I gave him this to get signed. He says, we'll have a sketch anyway. And he did a quick sketch. A nice man. Mm-hmm. Uh, volume 2 actually starts off with finishing off last some of the issues from the last hardback and it starts off with Clarion issue 4, Burn, Witch Boy Burn, which has a cover of Clarion and Tickle being burned at the stake by his fellow witch people.
1: It's very Salem witch trial. Oh, the cat! Yeah.
0: Look at the cat! <laughs>
1: you do not notice the cat I did there, not so? notice the cat before. The cat's tied to a stake as well. Oh, <laughs> You don't look too happy about it. I can't believe for a second they managed to catch a cat long enough to get him tied up. I, know, yeah. I don't I think he would have scratched their eyes out before he let that happen.
2: You know, if, if, if you thought our cat was moody, Tickle's worse. Yeah,
1: but but Tickle does actually curl up on his neck most of the time, so... Yeah.
2: Clarion finds himself being burned at the stake by those who accuse him of being a heretic. That is until Melmoth and his men drill in. Melmoth talks about how he created the Croatoans back in the day of the early Puritans, and that because of that, they are part Shida. As he talks, Clarion runs to the church where he rings the bells nine times to call the Grundys home, who then attack Melmoth's men. Clarion is confronted by Judah, who is still injured by the train, who grants Clarion with the knowledge of the submissionaries. Clarion holds Tickle and finds a map on the wall, before he and Tickle become a horrible. He attacks Melmoth's men before fighting him himself. However, even after losing a limb and being burned, Melmoth refuses to die and walks off, saying that he'll be back one day. Clarin is unable to come out of the horrible form which harms both him and Tikal. His sister helps him, saying that there are some things that only the witch women learn. Later, as the Croatones burn Melmoth's men, Clarin decides to fight Bashida and leaves in the drill.
1: It was a good ending. To a series I've been a little bit lacklustre to. Like, it's not awful. I'm not spitting venom at a Grant Morrison comic. It was the lesser of the stories that he's, he's put together here. Melmoth shows up. This bald guy is Melmoth, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. He's a typical Morrison bad guy. Yeah. He's very eloquent, he's not snarky. Mm. in that way that Mark Miller writes all his bad guys yeah so that was nice but he's very immaculately dressed
0: yeah and you're, not,
1: and you're not telling me that he's not Grant Morrison D- I
2: guess he's more of a creepy Grant Morrison
1: why would you write yourself into your own stories as the bad guy <laughs> well,
2: why not
1: <laughs> why not yeah, yeah okay there's a very Stepford Wives vibe to the kids Midwich cuckoos sorry to the children in this and the Solomon Grundys are brilliant hmm and I'm presuming that Clarion's going to show... That's a lovely page, the page of the cat lady. The Horrigal. Teakle, isn't it? The Horrigal, sorry. Yeah, that's a really good page. Because yeah. cats are, are all like that, really, I think. Well, it's part Clarion as well. Yes, so it tied up very nice. And um, and it led on very nice. And it leads on with what happens with Monmouth.
2: In Frankenstein, Lead yeah. to
1: Frankenstein, yes, which we've not covered yet, which is also very, very good. But I wasn't sorry to see that one go.
2: Yeah. I did not
1: like it, and it wasn't... I turn the page and you get to a Clarion store and you think, oh, God, I've got to get through this. Yeah. It just wasn't one of my favourites.
2: It wasn't bad. I thought there were the quite interesting bits of dialogue where Melmoth created the Croatoans, where where he did nasty things with Puritan girls. Yeah. And so, like, Clarion is half-sheeter himself. And there's also my, my favourite dialogue, it's like, don't cry, Mother, I'll try to forget that you led the rally to <laughs> burn me at the stake. <laughs> yeah, he's very forgiving. Yeah, yeah.
1: Isn't he? Alright, fair enough, shall we move on to the next one?
2: Yes. So you didn't like Clarion much as a whole?
1: Uh, it wasn't... No, it wasn't bad, I did not not
2: like it. Maybe I have didn't liked think
1: it. it was as good as the other ones.
2: Maybe you would have liked it back in your pretentious Vertigo days. <laughs> Maybe I would have <laughs> liked You more Maybe, like Clarion. Yeah. Possibly. Whereas now, I liked Guardian and Zatanna and Mr. Miracle more. Yeah. Mr. Miracle, issue one, new gods, spelt a with a Z, uh, is by artist Pasquale Ferry, colourist Dave McKeague, and letterer Pat Brossow. The cover is... Is, is, is Mr. Miracle being crucified on an upside-down contraption? Which is a
1: homage to one of the original Kirby covers. I thought it was, actually. Isn't it? Yeah. It's... Uh... It's a very recognisable... There's no after Kirby... No. ...on the page, anyway. Again, I think the colouring's doing a lot of the hard work. Yeah, it's the same with the rest of the story, though, mm. really. Yeah, but it looks nice. It looks very pretty. It looks like pencils, actually. It look Maybe it's just been penciled and straight coloured. Yeah. Maybe they've not bothered doing any inking on it. I don't know.
2: It's good, though. Hmm. Shiloh Norman is Mr. Miracle, one of the seven celebrity wonders of the world. He finds himself in his latest stunt attempting to escape from a black hole. He and his companion Motherbox are sucked into the hole where they meet a strange man in a chair in the event horizon. The man is Metron, who tells Shiloh about a war in heaven and a being named Darkseid. After a whole eleven seconds of silence, Mr. Miracle finds himself out of the black hole... In the after-party, Shiloh runs away, and in a meeting with his therapist, talks about what happened. Questioning his life and if there's something more, Shiloh sat outside his house. His manager, ZZ, said he'd help him relax, and introduced him to a group of women, each specialising in a different kind of pain. Shiloh saw them as something else, something darker, and ran away, believing that they were part of the dark side that Metron had told him about. After telling this story, he leaves the therapist and walks down the street until he sees a man in a wheelchair in the middle of the road. He calls out to the man, thinking that he's Metron in disguise. However, the man says that he sometimes makes wages with Metron and that he didn't believe Sheila would survive for long. After all, the Black Racer calls it like he sees it. As cars speed down the streets, the Black Racer shouts out how long Sheila Norman can survive in the drive-by derby.
1: This was excellent. Yeah. Why did you think I would like this
2: one? Because it's, you always complain about Out There Morrison, especially since this is a part of Final Crisis, which you didn't like.
1: I didn't like Final Crisis because it didn't make any goddamn sense.
2: Yeah, I suppose if you if you high, it might make some sense. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't, so. <laughs> but this made perfect sense. Yeah. And it.
1: I always liked Mr. Miracle anyway. Yeah. I mean, I'm intrigued as to why he's not Scott
2: free. Um, he's just a different. Like the Guardian is a different. Yeah, Guardian.
1: but the, all of the Kirbyisms. There's a glorious two-page spread of Mister Miracle meeting Metron, and him telling him the story of the New Gods, and we see Orion and Dark and then it comes back to now, and Sheila Norman kind of thinks he's a little bit insane. Yeah, and that he's cracking up a little bit, but he's actually a world-famous escape artist in the real, well, the DC universe. But then you keep getting introduced to all these characters that are analogues to the fourth world characters. Yeah. And as you go along they will get more and more sinister. Yeah. Particularly in the issue. They're all
2: there from the start. They're but... all
1: here from the start, yeah. Um, Metron's in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. and they're all around... We don't meet Darkside in this one yet, do we? Not yet. But he's talked about...
2: Yeah. D-Sards in this issue.
1: D-Sards in this. d mm-hmm. he's therapist. Spoiler.
2: He's just after Motherbox. Yeah. That's all he's after all the way through. And That, that creepy where he just bites into a battery.
1: Yeah. That was a bit eeky, that, wasn't yeah. it?
2: Yeah.
1: Very strange. Oh, I thought this was really good, and... It carried on being really good throughout the next two issues. I've not read issue four yet.
2: Well, I guess you likes it because it's more Kirby than Morrison. It is more Kirby than Morrison, but the, the problem that you had with
1: Kirby was he, he had excellent ideas and his artwork was brilliant, but he needed somebody to help him refine them. Yeah. And not be quite as, oh, well on this page, I'm going to do this because I can.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Whereas here, Morrison's taking the very big Kirby ideas and doing something. It reminds me of one of those episodes of Star Trek where all the cast are playing different parts. Right. And then for the first 25 minutes, you're like, what the hell's going on? Why is he not Commander Cisco? Why is he somebody else? And yeah. then you learn, like, it's probably something like, oh, it's just a holiday malfunction. But for the first 25 minutes, it was really good. Yeah. Because there was a central mystery there as well, why is Major Kira not Major Kira? What's going on? And this is the same. Yeah. Why are the new gods not the new gods? Mm.
2: And where have they fallen from? And what's going on. That's kind of why it works as a nice connection to Final Crisis with the time travel and things. As well
1: as connecting to Fourth World. Yeah. This isn't negating anything that happened in the Fourth World. No. But you're reading it wondering what's going on in a good way. You're
2: not reading it going, what the hell is
1: happening here?
2: Mm. Because it helps the mystery that you need. Because you're learning about it through Philo. Yeah. So you're learning about it as he's learning about so it so that way they kind of need to be unf- unfamiliar as yeah all? and because he's just as
1: in the dark as you are yeah you've gotten into the story mm. so you're going
2: along with him going well okay what, why Metro side oh it's all the way through it and that helps it because it's more of a B-list story there are no A-list main DC characters in this but then all of a sudden they're introducing Dark Side and the new gods hmm so it, it kind of helps it than being unrecognisable, because suddenly it's not a bigger story than it is. Mm, I loved Granny Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're all a bit creepy.
1: I've not quite decided if Granny Goodness is a girl.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Or if she's just a bloke who likes being a girl.
2: <laughs> you get the Superman animated series. Yeah, where she was voiced by a man. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, yeah, there is that
2: vibe to it's it. It's just a pantomime. I, yeah,
1: pretty much. Oh, no, it isn't. <laughs> I thought this was brilliant. I really did enjoy the Mr. Miracle one. Mm. And it was one of them as we're getting into the, the volume two. Three of the new miniseries in this were better than volume one. Even yeah. though I really did enjoy Guardian and Zatanna. Yeah. And that was the first one that I read that goes, wow, this is better than volume one. Yeah. It was great. Really enjoyed it. Mm.
2: Uh, actually, I don't think it's one of my favourite ones. Is it now? No. Which is your favourite? Overall, probably Frankenstein. Right, well, d- good choice. Yeah. I th- mm. Frankenstein is great.
1: No problem with that choice. <laughs> uh,
2: Zatanna issue four, Zor, <laughs> is a cover of Zatanna doing magic things uh, with books flying around her.
1: Yeah, the covers aren't the most imaginative in the world. But they're nice. Said. But they are lovely. Ryan Suit's really, really. What's Ryan Suit doing now? He was doing some buffy he's stuff. He's doing
2: covers. Is he? I think he's doing Future's End covers.
1: Yeah, oh, that's a shame. Why does Misty look
2: like Lily Allen? Yeah. Uh, she <laughs> only has noticed. Yeah. Alright, fair adios. So tell us what happens in this one. Zatanna and Misty arrive in Slaughter Swamp on Vanguard and inspect the house. Sensing something bad, Zatanna says goodbye to Misty before she gets on Vanguard, who takes her off to keep her safe in Tibet. From the walls of the building comes Zor, the evil opposite of Zatanna's father. Mocking her for thinking that he could be her father, Zor possesses Zatanna and turns her into his daughter, Zorina. However, Zatanna uses this to her advantage, and Zorina restores herself to Zatanna to annoy her dad. Zor grows in size until he's standing over the swamp. Zatanna releases the Gwydion and tells it to grow like Zor and become her will in battle. The wills of Zor and Zatanna fight as they constantly grow until they are big enough to stand on planets. Zor says that he knows where her father's books are, as he has become the universe that contains them. With just one punch, Zatanna falls back and out of the constructs of the universe. Falling through matter, Zatanna reaches out for the seven unknown men. Impressed at her ability to reach out to them, the unknown men take her in and grant her wish of finding her father's books in return for a capture of Zor. However, they allow Zatanna to ask her father directly. They put her into contact with him and he tells her that the Book of Water is a kind heart, the Book of Earth is a graceful body, the Book of Ur is a keen mind and the Book of Fire is strength of spirit. He wrote his books in his daughter, Zatanna. She tells this story as an emergency debrief at her self-help meeting. As she leaves, she says that she needs a new adventure. And as she does, Misty rides down on Vanguard with an army of winged horses behind them. Misty's stepmother is about to invade Earth, and she thought of Satana.
1: Hmm. And this all started with her doing something like that. It all started with her saying, bring me the man of my dreams. Yeah. Which kind of backfired on her. Yeah. And I did like the first page of this. We get a look inside Satana's wardrobe, and earlier on I said that she really wore something that she'd spill out of her top. Yeah, and here she actually explains it that she actually wears an awful lot of it on stage, and she likes being dressed up on stage, or oh, when she's doing her magic. So, all right, if she's comfortable wearing it, I'm not going to complain that there's lots of cleavage on on display. Mm. This was another one where the dialogue and the relationships between Misty and Zatanna were great.
2: Yeah, and there's the the big wheel that she spun. The, the dress big wheel that she found,
1: Yeah, and um, she thinks it's her dad in the doorway, but it's actually Zor. Mm. And then the fight with them. I mean, I'm not really normally a big fan of mystical, magicy bad guys, but I felt this real. This was really good because his dialogue was f- the funny. It seemed like for this one, do you know what it felt like? It yeah. felt like he was channeling Neil Gaiman more than
2: he was being Grant Morrison. That kind of ended us. If you're going to say Neil Gaiman, it was like Neil Gaiman writing Buffy.
1: Yeah, that kind of... Like when the books are magic. Yeah. This was a little bit more whimsical than you normally find Grant Morrison being, and the dialogue where she she tells him he's got a stupid beard. I love his comment. And, uh, liar. It's a magnificent beard, and I know you want one. It was... Uh, that's, that's what I came out of the Zatanna one, being that this was Neil Gaiman... Or yeah. Grant Morrison doing a Neil Gaiman story. Yeah, we both and, came out of the same movement. Yeah, pretty much, and he did it very well. Mm. The art, the the Ryan, Su- we can't say enough nice things about the Ryan Suka artwork, which is very, very nice. I like that it's now tying into all the other stuff, whereas the Tanner did seem like it was quite standing alone. Yeah, from the overall story until Ex- you get well, to except the, end. the last issue, yeah. until you get to this one. Yeah, where it all all ties up quite nicely. And I love the ending, I need a new adventure. (laughs) And then the the winged horse comes back with Misty on it saying, my stepbrother's about to invade Earth, I thought of you. Yeah. And there you go, there's her new adventure. So I presume that's tying her
2: into... Into the last issue, yeah.
1: So we don't see Zatanna again now until we get to the last issue. Hmm. Because I know I've not seen her in the ones that I've read.
2: No, nah, she shows up at the end.
1: Right. Okay.
2: Dad, I kind of like how it gets very, very Morrisoner with the, her going through the the time constructs, but then he kind of brings that in with her talking to her dad.
1: Yeah. Well, this goes back to what we were saying earlier on. You're never confused when you're reading this.
2: No, even proving that he can do it when he wants to. Yeah. And he's been as Morrison as he can be with her falling through panels and into... Yeah,
1: and the art does that really well. It reminded me of J.H. Williams third, Yeah. In that the art, which is, goes back to he did the first issue, didn't he? Mm. And he drew kind of, the time kind of like Ryan Suck. Yeah. So they must have all been playing
2: off each other. Mm. Even if they'd never actually seen what they we were, were doing. If you see them, the, the character designs in the end of but yeah, one J.H. Williams done them all and Morrison's done them all they're both completely different <laughs> alright maybe there was no communication <laughs> so there Grant Morrison's looks like how they ended up being Williams's ended up completely different
1: uh, ok fair enough It was good I enjoyed that as a Tanner series yeah it's it, it's a shame that it ended up being in volume 2 because then you've just had the Mr. Miracle one that was kind of better
2: yeah my favourite bit of this issue was is when she spoke to her dad. Yeah, and she told her that the
1: magic books are in you. What she's been looking for all along. That it's in yourself, which is the message. Yeah. What you are looking for is within yourself. Mm. Very profound, Grant.
2: Yes. Uh, next is Bulleteer, issue one. Ballistic, how the Bulleteer began. Uh, which is by artist Yannick Paquet, Inca Michael Burr, colourist Alex Sinclair and letterer Phil Balsman. The cover is of Bulleteer smashing through a wall. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're not really she's looking spilling at it. She's out world. of her
1: top because she's very amply proportioned. Yes. But that's setting up that this entire issue is cheesecake. Yeah. Of the highest order. The entire story is... Storious. There isn't a panel or a page in this book where she is either not completely undressed... Or in a very state of undress, or only in her underwear. Or wearing a very short dress. Yeah. There's that little bit where she's got the little strapless, backless, classless little back dress on. But other than that, she's either in her underwear or she's not wearing anything. Mm. And I actually thought the level of cheesecake in it was very gratuitous.
2: But then there's a level of it that also ties into the story.
1: Yeah, for a Grant Morrison comic. But that's what he's talking about in the story, isn't he? Yes. The whole point of this issue is our obsession with youth and
2: staying young. Which we'll learn in the synopsis. Which, yeah, you've not told us the synopsis. <laughs> Second time in a row you Sorry.
1: Sorry, I got very excited about the comic.
2: <laughs> was, it, was it the lack
1: of clothes? No, because I actually felt that was a bit too gratuitous. Yeah. But it does play into the theme of the story, so... mm, Alright. Cake and eat it and all that
2: stuff. (laughs) Alex Harrower woke up one night to find her husband still working on the computer. He was researching and working on a metallic smart skin for the military. However, he starts thinking that maybe they should use it on themselves and become superheroes like the husband and wife team Bullet Man and Bullet Girl back in World War 2. He says that the smart skin would preserve them so that they can be young forever, but Alex gets annoyed that he pointed out what little wrinkles she has, and leaves. When she gets home from work, she finds him sat at the computer, covered in the smart skin. He gets up and says that he feels heavy and can't breathe. As Alex calls for an ambulance, he touches her, and the smart skin starts growing on her, too. As they are rushed into hospital, the doctors try to break into the skin, but are unable to. Alex survives, and watches her husband die because of the skin. Some time later, Alex looks on her husband's computer to see if the research was still there. However, she finds bookmarks for superhero fetish sites and emails to and from a girl named Sally who is young forever. The emails say that he wanted to be a team with Sally and be young forever because of the smart skin and he couldn't help but see his wife in ten years. Enraged and heartbroken, Alex runs through the wall and keeps on running until she comes across a building on fire. Using her indestructible skin to help, she jumps into the building and frees the people stranded inside. Set on this new career path, she sits in front of her mirror and dons her new costume, becoming the Bulleteer. And
1: of course, when she rescues the people inside the fire, her top burns off. Yes. Because why not? Because why not? But that's what I was saying before I rudely preempted your synopsis. (laughs) The whole point of this story is youth and our obsession with it. And you are kind of like... It is a little bit gratuitous, the amount that she's in her underwear. Mm. But at the same time, thematically, that's what he's addressing. Yeah. So there's a part of you that's like, on the one hand, yes, you're being cheesecake. On the other you, that's what you're talking about. So are we giving you a pass from that mm. or not? So I liked this a great deal. It read like... A Marvel Comics idea done by image in the 90s, but by somebody Image that could write. Yeah. If this had been done as an image comic in the 90s, it would have had none of that subtext. Yeah. Of the obsession with youth and the obsession with appearance and the obsession with staying young. Because essentially what he's done here is create a plastic surgery technique that stops you from aging. Yeah. That's what he's tried to do. I love that Morrison gave you no explanation for why he died and she didn't. Mm. I liked that. It was just a one in a
2: million chance she didn't die. And I also kind of took it as it was him that did that. So what he's gonna done is he did something selfishly and then died. And paid the price. but then died and left it all on her. As yeah. another kind of selfish act.
1: Yeah. So she's now gonna tidy up the mess and all this stuff that she finds out. Yes, it's very Morrison to be fe- to be into the fetish side. Yeah of superheroes he must have this thing that everyone who dresses up as a superhero must be a
2: fascist because this is the second third time it's
1: it's a common theme yeah in his work but again he kind of gets away with it here because she's reluctant to do it yeah and she's not the character that is the fascist fascistist. she's found out that her husband was after he's died when she's looked on his computer and everything
2: yeah so, Which is something that's there from the start. Like, when she yeah. walks in, he's always looking at it, but yeah, turns he, it off. Yeah, he turns the
1: computer off when she walks in. Very, very subtly, yeah. it has to be said. Why well, she didn't see it then, Yeah, given that she's right behind him, I don't know. If she'd have been coming down the steps in front of him, that may have made a bit more sense. Mm. But as it is, she sneaks up behind him and doesn't notice that he's looking at a girl bending over in her underwear. Or in a superhero costume, yeah. whichever. But no, it was really good. I really enjoyed this. And you do get the impression she thinks her costume's silly. Because mm. she doesn't want to do this. But then she goes on to do the right thing, saving those kids from that fire, because it's the right thing to, to do. To make
2: the most of us.
1: So she's a, a Marvel superhero. Yeah. Or a DC superhero. But in a comic done in a, a much more over-the-top style of the 90s. Mm. I actually, again, I read the Mr. Miracle one and then I finished the Zatanna one yeah. and then I read this one and then I read the Frankenstein. I'd only planned on sitting down and reading one of them. Yeah. And I ended up ploughing through these all the way through to Mr. Miracle Chapter 3, I think.
2: I, I also kind of like how with the Bulleteer one, it's the the theme that's kind of been there since the beginning with gimmicks and then we saw with Zatanna with the self-help group and most people in the self-help group show up in the Bulleteer. Mm. So it, it's kind of like the bulleteer is the the American Idol superhero generation they were talking about in Zatanna.
1: Yeah, yes, they, they mention that that the, the, they just they don't want to earn it. Yeah, yeah, which is what he's doing at the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah, wow, <laughs> thematic elements all being brought together. It's very clever. Very impressed.
2: Mm. Last one tonight. <clears throat> yes, uh, which is Frankenstein Issue 1, Ugly Head, which was by artist Doug Mank. Doug in Colourist John Calliz and letterer Phil Balsman. The cover is of Frankenstein standing in the moonlight over the de- the bodies of dead monsters. Which is pretty darn bad. It's excellent, isn't
1: it? I'm looking at the splash page, which is also <laughs> excellent. I like the, the, yeah, the, the light shining through his bullet holes yeah. in his chest and his arms. The art in this, We're, we have, or I have, I don't know if it's particularly you, but we've been quite negative, or I've been quite negative to Doug Manker in the past. Mm. But his art in this is phenomenal.
2: I think what it is, his art's better now, but it's a lot more suited to Frankenstein than it is to superhero comics.
1: Vertigo stuff.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd rather see him at his worst working on a book where it looks at its best than him doing his best on, say, Green Lantern.
1: Yeah, the art in this is brilliant. Yeah. I didn't know it was Doug Manka. Because I'm looking at it going, this is phenomenal. And when I saw it was him, I was like, really? Yeah. The guy that we
2: didn't like when we did (laughs) Final Crisis? It's Mm. just the different kind of story. yeah. In 1870, Frankenstein battled Melmoth and his monsters on a train until Frankenstein shot Melmoth's head off and the train derailed, falling off a cliff and crashing into the ground below. Years later, in the town that was made at the foot of the cliff, a boy nicknamed Uglyhead sees the thoughts of those in his high school. Everyone there insults him except for one girl. He decides to spur her. One of the girls walks home. And on the way, though, she bumps into Ugly who uses her thoughts to make her insecure. He takes her off to get her own butterfly, just like his. The next day, the school see what an insecure mess the girl has gone herself into, and Ugly Head uses everyone's insecurities against them and takes them all to get their own butterflies. That night at prom, the one girl who didn't insult him shows up with her boyfriend and finds Ugly Head standing in the middle of the hall surrounded by st- the students, dead with monsters crawling over them. In a panic, the girl runs, and her boyfriend stays and dies trying to save her. As she runs, another monster rises from the ground. The monster says that he'll help, and kills Ugly Head with St Michael's sword. After setting the school on fire, he walks away, telling the girl that if a man named Melmoth and the Sheeda return, then she should point them in the d- monster's direction. And to tell them that Frankenstein lives.
1: This was also excellent. Mm. Uh,
2: again, there's an undercurrent here of outward
1: appearance. And the person that you are inside is what makes you a nice person, not your outward appearance. Which ties in with the bulletier yeah. theme that, uh, he, that Harrow was experimenting with. He can read everybody's minds because he's got... That funny little she de furry on the back of his neck. But yeah. he doesn't have it at the beginning. Or do we just not see it? Maybe it's under his collar. You think it's under his collar? He also bears a startling resemblance to Doctor Octopus. Yeah. Which I thought was quite intriguing. Because he manages to convince the pretty girl, because even though the pretty girl is insecure, because that's the whole point of high school. Yeah. And the whole point of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that even the pretty people are insecure when you're in high school. Mm. Although you'd never know it.
2: I like how in that panel you can see St. Michael's Sword in the window. Yeah. And it's pretty funny how the sword Frankenstein uses to kill everyone is at the building where the Shida are hiding. Oh, all right. So the, the little uh, butterfly store, that's where the Shida are hiding. Mm. Because he thinks they're butterflies and that's where he takes everyone.
1: So is Excalibur Fantasy next door to the butterfly world? Because it be, doesn't yeah. seem to have its own front door.
2: No. Unless they show... Shop space. Maybe. That the only way. This is a bit of a jarring change from going to Excalibur Fantasy to Pretty Butterflies.
1: Yeah. And he corrupts her. And then she ends up with one of those little furry things in her hair. Yeah. Don't you? Hmm. I, I really like this one. I thought the yeah, art was really good. I loved that the story was... The story on... That doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? The story took its time to unfold, but it never felt like it was dragging. And Frankenstein's not even a part of it until you get to the end where you get the prom. Yeah. And he's just like, Carrie, he's killed everyone at the
2: prom. Which is quite the stereotypical story with a prom and the appearance. And then the line of dialogue, I love you, in the kind of way they'll haunt you.
1: Yeah. So he's being very postmodern again. Yeah. Which normally I don't like. But then Frankenstein just pops up from the ground... Where did he come from?
2: I assumed the train crash. Right. The town was built over that. He was underneath the ground waiting to be called again. Yeah. Was something left undone is when he always rises. Fair enough.
1: There's, it's a testament to his writing that when Otto Octavius, which isn't his name (laughs) I know, but that's what I'm going to call him, gets killed and actually starts pleading with Frankenstein, you actually feel a bit sorry for him. But is the implication he's been dead a long time from the he... way that he's carrying his
2: body and his head and stuff? I wouldn't really say he's dead, but he's he's certainly crazy enough because of the Shida brainwashing him.
1: Mm. And the last line where he says, oh God, I'm in hell as he died. Who's in hell? Him or uh, the Shida Farrah. Yeah. Because it's not quite clear where the, the word balloon's going and to. And
2: they've both got their heads cut off.
1: And they've, both, well, they've not got their heads cut off. The Shida has. The Shida definitely has. But he's he's just got the sword through the back of the neck. Mm. He's not got it cut off.
2: But it doesn't really matter. But does
1: it (laughs) you're just nitpicking the amount of dead that he is. (laughs) But yeah,
2: I like how on that page he just kills someone and the next page he's burned the entire school down. Yeah,
1: he's burning the school down and getting rid of all the bodies, isn't he? Yeah. Which makes sense. See the head's still there. Yeah. So he's not done a very good job of destroying it. I
2: think he's just burned down. The alive ones.
1: The best thing about that, it was part one of a
2: four-issue miniseries that totally works on its own as a story. It was part one of a four-issue miniseries that was a series of one-shots. Yeah. The Frankenstein was a series of x file stories, but starring Frankenstein.
1: Oh, right. Okay.
2: Or have you not read any more Frankensteins? I think I've read Red Zombies. Oh, the one where he goes to Mars? Yes. Which is... Which is p-
1: John Carter of Mars, which is absolutely fantastic. Well, it's a continuation of... Uh, Yeah, which is really good.
2: Yeah, all the Frankenstein ones are just one-offs.
1: As with last week, though, that's as far as we got (laughs) when we were reading it. We've been very busy this week planning for London Film and Comic-Con.
2: That and, because you hadn't finished them, I wanted to leave it an even number.
1: Yeah, and to see where we ended up when we finished this week. So next week we'll probably wrap all of this up. Yeah. I would imagine that we won't stretch this out to four issues. So there's probably going to be quite a lot that we'll cover next week. Is it mm-hmm. ten again? Something like that. Something like that. We've, we've done it all moderately, evenly. So there you go. That's yes. the, We've not really got to wrap up because we didn't know where we were at <laughs> <laughs> until we sat
2: down. Favourite of these new issue ones? Uh,
1: oh, I can't decide. I liked all three issue ones. Yeah. I liked Frankenstein, I liked Puliteer and I liked Mr Miracle. It is entirely possible that it'll go south as you're reading through the rest of them. Yeah. But all of those first issues were really good. Hmm. And I was very impressed with them. I thought they were great. Next time on an all new episode Well, Seven Children's Victory third and final part, I think. Yes. That's what we'll be doing. See you next week. Goodbye. Bye. the devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and no infringement is intended so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at 2TrueFreaks.com, and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the 2 True Freaks internet radio network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.haykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name and comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>